Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 130. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us through a joyous festival known as Purim, even though it's not one of the biblically mandated festivals like we would read about in Leviticus chapter 23. Nevertheless, it's a time of joyous celebration of rejoicing in the fact that you have preserved us and kept us alive and brought us to this place as a people. We thank you, Lord, for your protection. We thank you, though, that you have set your uh, affection on us as a people group, speaking of Israel, and that you have not forgotten us even down to this very day. It's it's the homins of the world, boo, who would want to, to wipe us out of existence. But because of of your chosen ones, because of the, the Esters of the world, um, that you have used to help preserve us as a people. Um, Lord, we know that you are keeping us. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are growing us into a people group who praise your name. And this would include the Gentiles that you have promised f- through the promises, through the scriptures from time, times past that the Gentiles will be brought into the into the family so that they can praise the Lord together with your, the existing people. And we'll read about that tonight in Romans chapter 15. Thank you, Lord, for raising us up as a people. Thank you for sending your son, Messiah, Yeshua, to die on our behalf, to bring us into a right relationship with you at the heart level, an individual, personal relationship with the God of the universe, the creator, the one who made everything happen. This is just too wonderful for words to express, filled with the Spirit of God and in the goodness of God, and uh, given um, a place where we can uh, study your words and to um, press in and to strengthen ourselves as individuals, as families, as communities. Continue to raise us up, protecting us from the this evil pandemic that's all around us. Give us a hope. Give us a sight beyond a sight. Help us to to make our praise in Messiah Yeshua and to, to be thankful for his protection, his provision even during the all of the uh, the layoffs and the the furloughs and the unemployment and, and the political unrest and uncertainty that's going on in America particularly uh, continue to, to help us uh, to praise you help us to be a witness to those around us uh, sharing the good news this now is the perfect time people are just so stressed going crazy losing their minds over over um, the, the situation that's going on in our country in America 
And, but we as Christians, we know better. We have a, a, a an anchor. We have a firm uh, um, uh, foundation for our faith. We have a hope that looks past the um, the, 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 the the present situation. Um, we have a God that who is a, a loving Father who's promised to protect us, and so we look to Him. Um, uh, give us. Um, a holy boldness in our witness so that we can share the good news with others around us, our friends and family members, our co-workers and people that we might even meet on the street. Give us a words to speak and we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory. Bishim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you everyone for joining me week after week. My name is Ari Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenua, the, uh, the Harvest Congregation in Thornton, Colorado. As you can see on my screen right now, I've got the Harvest website pulled up at www.grafted.com. You're invited to join us in person or online, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, go to our website and you can click on the um, about or you can click on the contact us. Uh, uh, links to get more information on how to reach us. Otherwise, just um, go online and watch the uh, streaming services that we're uploading. Mark, Pastor Mark is still um, going through his Purim and Providence series. On the, He's on part three today, and uh, I encourage you to avail yourselves of those resources. Likewise, I've got my own um, uh, website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's spelled T-E-T-Z-E. T-O-R-A-H dot com. I invite you to go to my own home website where I park all of my Torah commentaries and um, Bible commentaries and things like that. You can see from the homepage right here all those links there. Um, uh, feel free to avail yourselves of all of those. And if you have questions, um, drop me a line. Typically, at the bottom of any one of my commentaries, you'll find my email address, yeshua613 at hotmail.com. You can go ahead and send me an email if you have questions or comments about the commentaries that I put out there as well. I also have my own um, YouTube channel. Didn't mean to have that play there. My own YouTube channel at um, www.youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries, all one word there. And um, I just have a blast with YouTube. I'm so thankful that I'm able to to uh, uh, put together YouTube videos. Um, I upload videos um, probably six times or seven times a week. I'm pretty busy guy. As you can see, uh, my latest video is uh, right there, the highlights for my Torah commentary. If you click on the videos link, you can see that there that I just uploaded uh, yesterday. And it's doing pretty good. Wow, 21 views. <laughs> um, I'm a small channel, as you can see from my uh, views from all my other videos, but uh, when you're on my YouTube channel, there's five things I'm going to ask you to do. Yes, I finally added the fifth thing. First one, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Why not? What are you waiting for? Number two, hit the little bell for notifications. That way you stay in the loop. Number three, hit the, um, oh, I always forget. What is number three? Uh, uh, hit the little like, yeah, thumbs up. That's the third one. Hit the little thumbs up. I can see on my screen I have a little thumb there. Hit the little thumbs up because I'm, I think you're going to like my videos. Number four, hit the little um, uh, share button, right? When you're watching a video, you can hit, uh, hit the word share or a little arrow that's pointing out to the right there. Share the content with your other, uh, your friends and family members and people in your social media circles and things like that. And then the fifth one is comment. Leave comments on my videos. Yeah, tell me what you like, what you didn't like. Tell me what, what. Uh, tell me where you agree. Tell me where you disagree. Uh, let's have dialogue there, okay? And uh, that is always nice. These are the live internet studies, and I bring them to you week after week. Let me just give you some of the quick uh, logistics, real quick. 
this is, as I mentioned, um, episode number 130. Our meeting date is always on Saturday evening. The, the uh, date for today's live recording is March the 6th. 2021. That's the USA date and time. Our meeting time is on Saturday evenings from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Sometimes we go a little bit over. There are two 30-minute segments that I break the study up into. The first segment is Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my, we're following a commentary that I put together. It's kind of an ongoing commentary. We're in part 48 tonight. And then segment two is given over to the Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper two, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 65 tonight. And then we've got a featured YouTube video that we're going to watch uh, on Mark 7, 18 and 19. It's kind of related to cash root and keeping kosher. All is clean, yet all is not food. We'll talk a little bit about that verse. And in time, when we get to Romans 14, there will also be a discussion about food since a lot of Romans 14 is uh, related to a food-related topic. So these will kind of go hand in hand. Um, briefly, if you'd like to um, join us week after week, get access to Skype somehow, either on your desktop or laptop or your smartphone or tablet device, iPad, whatever you've got there, iPhone. Um, get Skype. Uh, it's free. You can create an account. That's also free, but you don't really even need any of that. What you primarily need is the group link for Skype, and I'd be more than happy to share that with you. The absolute easiest way to get the Skype link is to go to my website at tatesatora.com. Scroll down to the very bottom of the web page in that black section where you see some Hebrew writing there. Look at that little button that looks like an envelope where my little arrow is pointing where it says email button right now. Click that button. That'll send me an email. Say, Ariel, I'd like to join the live studies. I'd be more than happy to send you the link. And then while you're down there, take notice of the little yellow donate button as well. If the Lord is blessing you financially and he's laying it on your heart to share with me, financially. Well, this is the way to do that. You can donate securely via uh, PayPal, credit card, bank account, things like that. And I would be blessed to be the recipient of your uh, continued support uh, during this difficult time that I'm in right now, uh, currently seeking employment. Have been unemployed for going on a year now. It's just so difficult living in Korea and, uh, and having kind of the small job market that's available for foreigners out here, especially since I'm not fluent in Korean. But uh, um, I'd be blessed if you, if the Lord's laying on your heart to continue to help me out there. Um, you know, a little bit, a lot. It's, it's God's multiplying the loaves and the fishes. So no matter how much people send in, um, God is the one who's increasing it. So uh, don't feel pressured. But as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's turn now to Romans 14, unplugged, feasts and fasts and food. Oh my. And what I mentioned, uh, we took a break for Purim last week, but what I mentioned prior to that is that we're going to um, begin looking at, uh, we've been working our way through this um, introduction part that I added after the fact, and a little conclusion part. Let me blow this up a little bit. 300, I think, was what I like. And um, uh, there's a, 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 a quote here in the conclusions from uh, Mark Nanos, one of, one of my favorite Jewish historians. Uh, but before that, what I talked about a few weeks ago was that, um, I read this little part in my commentary, that Paul is very 
um, intentionally uh, getting the Gentiles and the Jews, uh, the readers of his letter, to understand their their role as a continuing um, and a growing community together in the plans of God. And here's what I said last week. I'll just jump right into it. These are um, uh, Mark Nanos's words. He said he says, "quote That is well, maybe I should back up a little bit. The context is a little odd. Uh, let me see. Yeah, let's start here." This is Mark Nanos. He says, quote, There's good reason then historically to suggest that Paul's instructions in Romans may have been directed to Christian Gentiles who were in need of being reminded boldly of their obligation to subordinate themselves to the governing authorities of the synagogues to which they were attached, including such matters as obedience to the operative halachot, that is, kind of group policy, halachot, for defining proper behavior for righteous Gentiles, i.e., the apostolic decree, no hide commandments, and the payment of taxes and other community obligations. And so what Mark Nanos is reminding us of is the fact that in Paul's day, um, there was no formal Christianity like we would describe it today, and so it's more natural to think of the Christian um, communities that were being formed as a subset of Judaism, uh, a, a, a sect of Judaism, even Paul describes it that way, with the uh, intended uh, result of allowing Gentiles to um, associate and affiliate with existing synagogue communities. This is long before the, um, I shouldn't say long, I mean, it was, it's within five to ten years of the destruction of the temple and the uh, parting of the ways between the church and the synagogue that would happen later on down the road. But when Paul was writing the Rome, to, the, uh, to the Romans in, in this letter, you know, we're talking about maybe mid-50s of his day, maybe mid to late 50s, 55, 56, 57, somewhere around there. Um, then uh, we're still talking about uh, Christian communities who were still very much associated, uh, even in Rome, with the expulsion of the Jews and Emperor Claudius' decree that took place at, that that resulted in possibly a good number of Jews, perhaps a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. We don't, we're not sure either way. But the point is, the damage that was done to the Jewish community uh, was uh, not meant to uh, cause the Christian Gentiles, the Gentile Christians, to think that God is done with the Jewish people. It's on that tone that Mark Nanos concludes by saying, that is, Paul and the Christian Jews and Gentiles of Rome both understood their communities as part of the Jewish communities. So understand the, the the focus that we're trying to bring to this part of our commentary as it results in our better understanding and appreciating the book of Romans and particularly this part of the letter that we're studying intently, which is Romans chapter 14. Because this part of the letter is where Paul's kind of uh, centering a lot of his energies on helping the two groups, the two people groups, Jew and Gentile, fit together and to work with one another cohesively and not tear one another apart. Uh, in, indeed, he used the phrase destroy one another and things like that, um, especially over something as seemingly mundane as food or special days, right? Things that were we already know from history were uh, very um, kind of flashpoints, especially in Jewish circles, table fellowship and worship days or special days, fast days, things like that. Um, all of those things were um, places where uh, Jewish people were not willing to, to yield very easily, uh, you know, concede. So um, weak and strong, Jew and Gentile need to come together and work out these differences without tearing one another apart. Um, 
uh, Nanos concludes, um, they are part of the Jewish community, speaking of the Gentile Christians. And when Paul wrote Romans, uh, with Christian Gentiles identified as quote-unquote righteous Gentiles who are now worshiping in the midst of Israel in the fulfillment of the eschatological ingathering of nations that we're going to read about in chapter 15, verses 5 through 12. So it's with that that I want to talk tonight. I want to exegete a little bit. It's kind of like a little excursus in the middle of my commentary that I haven't written about. So we'll just do this off the cuff. Let's turn to Romans 15. 5 through 12. We'll read it, and then we'll kind of go step by step and appreciate what we can using my own resources. Um, uh, appreciate what we can about how Paul's trying to, and I'll try to give you the the, 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 block, the bottom line up front, the bluff, the overview, is that I believe that Paul was trying to get uh, the Gentile Christians, who were the majority uh, in the group, right? Especially if we assume that many of the Jews had been expelled and were trying to come back now into Rome. They're trickling back in, but they still would have been the minority, not just in Rome overall, but they would have been the minority in the church. So Paul's trying to get the Gentile Christian majority to appreciate the Israel's role um, in the midst of them and how that the Gentiles and the Jews need one another in salvation history. Remember, Paul wrote earlier in Romans that the, self, that the gospel is the power of salvation, is, present tense, right, is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Not just was, but is. This means there's still a very uh, Israel-centric focus in Paul's mind when he's writing to Gentiles. Yes, you've been brought into the family, but how are you to treat the Jewish people, not just the Jews in your midst, the Messianic ones, but ultimately the bigger picture is how are you the church to 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 evangelize among the Jewish people and take this gospel to them? Where do they fit in? Where do you fit in? How do you guys fit together? What does God have to say about the matter? Let's turn to Romans 15 and, and take a look at some of these. All right, so let's first read Romans 15. Let's drop all the way down to verse, what did uh, Mark Nano say? Um, uh, 5 through 12. So let's start with, with um, verse 5. So we're jumping kind of in the context, but um, you can go back and read the whole chapter if you want to. But let's just start in verse 5 and read down to verse 12. Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Right away, right out of the gate, we know he's referring to two people groups, the harmonizing of the Jew and Gentile brought together as one new man and Messiah. So primarily, I would say, since he's writing to believers, to brothers, right, that we're talking about, the smaller, the internal brotherhood would have been um, the church gatherings, the Christians, um, the ecclesia, if you want to use that name now, um, Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. That's going to be his first um, uh, concern as the writer. Um, you guys need to live in harmony. But keeping in mind that Paul's not losing sight of the fact that there's a larger context to everything that he's writing, and the larger, broader context would be the harmony of Gentile Christians in the midst of greater Israel around them. That is to say, unbelieving Israel, the people he mentioned about as stumbling in chapters 9 through 11. Stumbling Israel, right? Blinded Israel. People who don't know their Messiah, um, the disenfranchised at this point in time because of the the, the Claudius uh, edict. So we need to find out how to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the context of verse 6 is, again, primarily first and foremost, as I understand it, to the church, 
to the ecclesia, to the believers, to the brothers, right? We want believers, to both Jew and Gentile and Messiah, to glorify uh, the, God, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the emphasis on God and Jesus, but to the extent that Paul still wants to see uh, stumbling Israel uh, saved and brought into a relationship with Messiah, he does also want the Gentile peoples as a group to eventually join in praise of God and eventually to the praise of Jesus Christ as well. Um, he's not giving up on Israel. God has not given up on Israel. Why would he want uh, the Gentile Christians to give up on Israel? So let's keep reading. Verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Again, the same themes. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Notice the example that Paul's drawing from. Messiah welcomed us. Who's the us? The church, the believing community, the brothers and sisters in Messiah. Christ welcomed us, but don't lose sight of the fact that, and we're going to see this as we, as, as, um, as Paul uh, pulls in these quotes, these four uh, passages out of its knock, we're going to see that in Paul's mind, Messiah first came to unbelieving Israel. Indeed, it was Yeshua himself who said that I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the, um, the you know, the, the, um, the, the, um, the medicine isn't sent to people who are well. The medicine is sent to people who are sick. You know, draw, I'm, I'm paraphrasing some of the things he said there. The point being, unbelieving Israel was, stumbling Israel was already a place where they were in need of a Messiah in the first century when Yeshua was sent, was, uh, was, uh, sent from his father. And just like Messiah ultimately would welcome the Gentiles in, first, and Paul knows this, remember he said to the Jews first and also to the Greek, first Messiah welcomed Israel. He, he, his ministry was primarily to Jews first. It was not to Jews exclusively. It was through the disciples that he would bring the Gentiles in. But for his part in the program, in God's program, Messiah was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wasn't sent to the Gentiles in mass. He was sent to establish what I like to call a power base among Israel first. And from that power base, he would launch his evangelistic program through the disciples with a view towards the nations and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises and bring the nations into a relationship with him, with his father, through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Acts chapter 2 and all of that all over again. But this would result in the nations being brought into proximity with the existing people of God, namely Israel. That's where Paul's going with this. Let's read it. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant, I'm reading out of the SV, a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, who are the circumcised? Well, Paul uses this phrase. It's rooted in the Greek word paratames. Uh, we can see it over here on this side of the screen right there. Paratames, paratame. Um, this is the plural here. So paratames and um or, or the singular as a collective singular. The circumcised is a technical term that had been used in Paul's day. Paul uses it over and over, like something like 15 different times in Romans alone. And many times, more often than not, he uses it goes on another seven times or so in Galatians. He often uses it not to describe the physical act of being circumcised, but he's using it to describe the, the um, Jewish people or Israel as a people group, 
It's kind of a, a sociological term, the circumcised peoples. So Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Now, was this primarily to the, to the Messianic Jews that he became a servant? Actually, no. As far as I understand the context, he primarily came as a servant to the unbelieving Jews. He came to minister to them, to bring them into a proper relationship with his father. So it is the context of Christ became a servant to the um, uh, um, to national Israel, to uh, stumbling Israel, uh, so that he could bring them in out of darkness and back into a, a right relationship. They had fallen by the wayside. They had allowed tradition to cloud their their way of thinking. They had missed the signs and the times of their visitation, to use uh, some uh, wording that founds in the Gospels as well. And so Messiah was very concerned. Yeshua was very heartbroken over their blindness. You know, it describes him as saying, you know, like a mother hen, I would I just wanted to gather you as a, as a hen would gather her chicks, but you wouldn't have me. And so I'm going to leave your house desolate and I'm not going to show up again, right? Yeshua's leaving planet Earth. And he says, until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? When you cry out for me, then I'm going to return. So Christ ministered to the circumcised, the Jewish people, unbelieving Israel. Yes, he ministered to the believing Jews as well. Don't get me wrong. But the, 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 the context of what Paul's trying to get at is that Messiah ministered to these people. Whether they were believers or not, he ministered to them. And primarily, like he said, the physician is sent to the sick, not to the well. And I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We can insert that into this text here. And why would he do that? There's at least two reasons that Paul brings up. And it's, they're linked together by this Greek word, um, huper, which means like, in, in, uh, so that, the, the, the equivalent of the, the key in Hebrew. So that, or in order that. And we can see this in, in the um, um, English right there, in order to, or in order that that. Why did he become a servant to, to the circumcised? Two reasons, at least, that Paul brings up. There's a multitude, but we'll just bring up the two that Paul does. One is to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promise to the patriarchs. That's one of the reasons why he became a servant, to show God's truthfulness. I said faithfulness, I'm sorry. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs. So that's the, one of the first reasons linked together by this uh, Greek word, huper. Um, God's truthfulness, God made promises to Abraham, and if those promises were not brought into reality, then God would be shown to be a liar, or at least uh, impotent, right? Incompetent, at the very least. But God is not impotent. He's not incompetent. He is uh, able to perform that which he promises he will do, namely the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to bless all of the nations through the seed that would come. Therefore, from uh, Paul's understanding of salvation history, the only one who could bring the Abrahamic promise to fruition, to bring it to pass, was either God himself or God's chosen representative, Messiah Yeshua, who of course was empowered by God. Thus, God planned that Yeshua would be the one to bring the Abrahamic promises into reality through Messiah's servanthood, through Messiah's suffering death, through his um, uh, submission to God, through his yielding to become the um, um, 
the substitutionary sacrifice to take away the sin uh, that was plaguing Israel. So Yeshua uh, took on the form of a servant, right? He humbled himself and uh, was allowed to uh, allowed himself to be um, sent to uh, the cross and to suffer and to die for the circumcised, right? To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch. That's one of the reasons that Paul brings this up. So notice, first and foremost, Yeshua's Become a, becoming a servant impacts Israel directly, first and foremost. But secondly, and, right, linked together by the Greek word de, Paul says, and, and we have another hooper in here somewhere, where is it? Right there. So we have two of them. There's one there and one there. And we see this in the English as uh, in order that, or in order to, right? First up here in verse 8, it's in order to. And then verse 9, it's in order that. But same Greek word, huper. So two reasons why he became a servant. One was in order to show God's truthfulness to confirm the promises. And the second was in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So first part of the program is Jewish-centric or Israel-centric. Christ became a servant of God so that God's faithfulness and the Abrahamic promise to Israel can be brought into reality. But secondly, so that the Gentiles can be brought into the program or into the family of God and so that um, the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, not just to the Jewish people, but for his mercy to them directly. And so with that as his uh, launching point for the mercy of Messiah, um, Paul launches into this bevy of quotes from the uh, Tanakh, um, you know, from the book of Isaiah or uh, Samuel and Isaiah and things like that on the book of Psalms. So let's look at them. Uh, the first quote here is, he says, therefore I will, as it is written, right, kakatuv in the, in the Hebrew, but gagraptai, uh, as it is written in the Greek, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now, the quote is, um, uh, the quote is actually, either from 2 Samuel or from Psalm. They're both the same um, wording. Uh, we're not sure which one he quoted from. The, the, the Septuagint renderings are very, virtually identical. Uh, 2 Samuel 22, 50 says, Therefore I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. And Psalm 1849 says, Therefore I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. You can even see in English the similarities between the, the two passages there. And so, um, which one was Paul quoting? We're not sure. Therefore I will praise you among the nations, uh, among the Gentiles, and sing your name. What is interesting, though, is that um, the way Paul is spinning the passage, the quote, it's as if Messiah Yeshua is speaking to God his Father. Yeshua, the one who was sent to minister to unbelieving Israel to, for the purpose of not just um, bringing them into a relationship with his Father, but also uh, to eventually uh, result in bringing the Gentiles into that relationship as well. Yeshua can say to his father, notice, let's put these words in Yeshua's mouth, therefore I, Yeshua, will praise you, my father, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name, my father. Notice the, the significance that this brought to Paul as he realized that the Messiah, the, 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 um, the, the, the Christ, the one who's promised to Israel, is going to sing praises to God among the Gentiles. 
This is significant for Paul's what we call Shema theology, the idea that God is the God, the one God of both Jews and Gentiles, like he talks about in, in chapter 3 near the very end of that chapter of, of this very letter, Romans. For Paul, it is paramount that Jews and Gentiles be brought together in one family. The promises to Abraham must envision Jew and Gentile come together in Messiah. Indeed, without both of those representative elements in the picture, the promises are incomplete. They're void. The promises cannot be fulfilled in Israel alone. They must extend to the people of the nations. Conversely, the promises cannot be fulfilled among the nations exclusively. They must also include national Israel. The two together fulfill the Abrahamic promise. Therefore, to have Yeshua's words, to have Paul putting in the mouth of Yeshua, therefore I, Messiah, will praise you, my Father, among the Gentiles, was significant for Paul. That was just profound. Indeed, it's the what we might call the end-time promises that were spoken about in the prophets that are actually being actualized before our very eyes, what we call the now but not yet aspect of Paul's writings. Paul realized that there were promises that were given to Israel that were supposed to be actualized at the end of the day. We're going to read about that in, say, Isaiah chapter 2 when we get to my liturgy tonight. The Achrit Hayamim in the, in the Hebrew. In the, uh, Hebrew the end of days. There were promises that Israel was expecting, and part of those promises had to do with the the um, inclusion of the Gentiles into the existing people group of God, national Israel, so that they could praise God together as one people. Well, Paul saw that with the coming of the new covenant and the inauguration uh, brought about by Yeshua's death on the cross, that these end-time promises were actually being actualized, realized in the present, in Paul's day, meaning, we could say it this way, the future had invaded the present. In seminal form, it wasn't in all of its fullness, but it was being um, demonstrated before our very eyes, kind of in, in, in down payment form. The Gentiles were being brought into a relationship with God, not just at the end of days, like Paul had read in his scriptures, but right before our very eyes. The Gentiles are praising God and recognizing God's chosen Messiah right now, which means the end is before us, which means the dawning of the end of the ages has come upon us. Let's rejoice with God together. And this is a program that, that Paul was going to champion. He's going to jump on this. Let's keep reading down through this. In um, in verse 10, uh, he pulls his second quote. So I'm sorry. So the first quote, as we mentioned, is from, uh, what did I say? It's either 2 Samuel 22 or Psalm 18. We could use either one. The, uh, the second quote, uh, in verse 11, Paul says, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. I'm sorry, I, uh, I I left off verse. Let's jump to verse 10. I jumped down too fast. In verse 10, and again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now again, this is an interesting quote, because for Paul, and this quote is from um, uh, uh, Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples. You can see right over here on, my, on this side of the screen. So uh, what's interesting about this verse, uh, is that the one I want? Nope, that isn't the one I want, sorry. Had the wrong one pulled up. 
Let's try this again. Uh, verse 10, rejoice with Gentiles with his people, is actually quoting from uh, Deuteronomy 32. Let's read the whole verse. Paul doesn't quote the whole verse. He just quotes, quotes part of it. But he's, the, the, from uh, the Deuteronomy uh, rendering, it reads, quote, Rejoice, O heavens, with him, and let all God's angels worship him. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. There's the part that Paul uh, pulls in uh, for his... Uh, um, quote, Re but the entire quote says, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his children. He will take vengeance on his adversaries and repay those who hate him. He will cleanse his land and his people. And perhaps Paul left all of that out because that doesn't apply to the, the, the central thrust of what he's trying to get at. He simply wants um, the part that meant, that mentions the Gentiles. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. Interestingly, from Deuteronomy's perspective, this is Moshe speaking, the people in the quote, his people, the people are the people of Israel. Na sorry about that. National Israel is in focus. Not just the believing Israel, but the Israel can rejoice in God's providence as a whole because God has protected Israel time and time again from calamity, rescued them from the clutches of Egypt, etc., etc., delivered them from the various uh, enemies that were in the land of Canaan over and over again. And so Israel as a national people group has reason to rejoice, rejoice, O heavens, with him, and let God's angels worship him. Rejoice, O nations, who are the nations? The Gentiles, who would be brought in. But from from Moses' point of view, he, I don't know if Moses is envisioning the Gentiles being brought in, as in joining Israel, but at the very least, is uh, Moshe is in, uh, enjoining the Gentiles to worship God and rejoice uh, with God's people. So that his people is the Jewish people, or Israel, as a national people group. And from that quote, we see Paul saying, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Same uh, important point that's being brought up. The Gentiles should be rejoicing with God's people, with the Jewish people. Remember, we talked about this challenge of trying to view the church as this separate entity, separate and distinct from Israel, um, over and against uh, you know unbelieving Israel, stumbling Israel that Paul calls them. And we got the church, the brothers are all just rejoicing, and but they've got this you know their own little uh, happy club. But you know the unbelieving Jews are left out. Why are they left out? Because they they rejected Jesus. They're the Christ killers, right? We don't want that viewpoint. That's that's a negative perspective, and that doesn't suit Paul's theology. He doesn't want the Gentiles to exclude the praise and worship from the Jews, even though the Jews are are in a position where they're um, stumbling, right? They're stumbling over the place of Gentiles in the in the community, and they're stumbling over Messiah Yeshua as the Messiah that was spoken of in the Tanakh. Paul wants, ultimately, the bigger picture in view is that Gentile believers and Jewish believers, yes, but the bigger picture is that Jews and Gentiles as one people group should be rejoicing together. Now, how that's going to happen, Paul doesn't flesh all of it out all the time. He simply sometimes says, uh, in this way all Israel will be saved. How? Does this mean every single Israelite? Mm, probably not. But uh, to the extent that Israel can be recognized as a people who's recognizing their Messiah and rejoicing in God's providence, not just to them as a people, 
but to the Gentiles. Ultimately, this the end picture that Paul has his focus on, the, um, the, the final picture that he saw when he went back and read through the prophetic passages. That's what I'm talking about when I say the Gentiles with his people. Ultimately, it's still God's people as a collective group. Presently, there's this anomaly going on. Presently, Israel is stumbling. The majority of Israel is stumbling in Paul's day, and Paul sees this as an anomaly because they had so many advantages, and yet they 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 failed to see the Messiah when he came. And so uh, that's where Paul's going with this. In verse 11, he says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Notice uh, something that uh, we don't catch readily is that the fact that Paul wants Gentiles to recognize their place among the people who for God would be something that is important for Gentiles to actualize, meaning this would prevent them from having kind of a wrong-headed notion that they have um, overtaken Israel as God's people or replaced God's people as the new people group or something like that. But at the same time, when we talk about Gentiles praising God along with or beside or next to or with um, the existing people of God, meaning Israel, this should also be a shocker to national Israel. The the part of national Israel that had become so kind of um, particularistic, exclusive, uh, holding to this idea that Jews and Jews alone had a place in God's program, salvation program, that Israel and Israel alone was special to God, that God had no place for Gentiles or pagans, that um, uncircumcised Gentiles had no belonging in the temple or bringing sacrifices or worshiping God. Israel had backed herself into this ethnocentric corner in the first century so that she was excluding the promises to the Gentiles. She was leaving the nationals out of the whole program. She was causing the Abrahamic promises to become void because they weren't looking and bringing out bringing the nationals in they weren't allowing the gentiles to be ex- included the, the 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 many of the the nationalistic perspectives in the present in Paul's day were um uh, uh, ex- uh leaving the gentiles out putting them at arm's length um excluding them from uh covenant promises provisions spirit uh, and filling things like that so the the fact that Paul's bringing this uh highlighting this in this part of this passage about the Gentiles is extremely significant, not just for the Gentiles, but for the Jews who were blinded to the place of the Gentiles in their midst. So in verse 11, when he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, he's bringing a quote from, um, uh, here's the Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples. The word for nations there in the Hebrew is uh, related to Gentiles or uh, the, the Greek word ethnos. Uh, goy is probably what it is in the Hebrew. I'd have to look it up. Praise him, all you peoples. These are This is kind of poetic parallelism. Nations and, and peoples are, are parallel. Paul is drawing from the Tanakh for his inspiration of the truth of, of the Abrahamic promise that the family of God must include Jew and Gentile in Messiah. It must ultimately include this idea that Jews and Gentiles are going to be brought together. How that's going to work itself out can only come to pass if we as Gentiles don't forget stumbling Israel. If we don't forget, if we keep in mind that God still has a plan and purposes and a promises made to national Israel, even though they're stumbling, 
even though they're stumbling, we cannot forget them as Gentile Christians. At the same time, the challenge to national Israel, who is stumbling, is that God has not forsaken you, O national stumbling Israel. Don't think that God has forsaken you. He's not given up on you. But, but, what's important for you to come to grips, grips with is that God is bringing the Gentiles in. Make room for them at the table, pun intended, considering the context of these, uh, where we're at in chapter 14 and 15 of Romans. Welcome them at the table. Welcome them into, into fellowship. Welcome them in the synagogues. Uh, their faith in Messiah is a demonstration of their, of their genuine faith in God, the same God that you worship, the same God that we declare is the one and only God in the Shema. And then the last verse, as we close this part of our commentary tonight, is in uh, the last quote is in verse 12, where Paul quotes from Isaiah, and this time he even says Isaiah. He says, and again, Isaiah says, in fact, it's the only one out of the, out of the four that he names. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule who? National Israel only. No, uh, uh, nope, that's not what it says. It says, he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. Right? And this time is quote, we can see it, is from Isaiah 11, verse 10. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will seek him, and his place of rest will be glorious. So again, Paul is letting the Gentiles know they have been part of the program from plan A. From the times of the prophets, from the time before there was a Roman, uh, 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 a Roman um, uh, um, government or, or a nation or anything. Um, the prophets had envisioned a time speaking to Israel. There's national Israel over again. Speaking to national Israel, there was a time, there's going to be a come time when the Gentiles will look to this chosen one, this root of Jesse, who is the Messiah, who is Yeshua, the servant. They will look to him and they will put their hope in him. And this will cause them, the Gentiles, to be brought into a right relationship with God and join the existing family of God. Notice I keep emphasizing the broad picture here because so often in commentaries I read that Paul is writing to the church in Rome and, and the Gentile Christians in Rome and the brothers in Rome, and he doesn't really care about unbelieving, stumbling Israel out there, you know, the people who got kicked out by Claudius's edict and who are now kind of trickling back into Rome. Paul doesn't really care about them. He only cares about the Romans, the Roman Christians, the Gentile Christians. Of course, I'm oversimplifying it. That's not really how the, the commentaries put it. But the, the net effect is the same, is that we've, we've, we've forgotten um, national Israel's plight. We've, we've forgotten the bigger picture that God wants to save national Israel in her blindness by bringing the Gentiles into the family so that the Gentiles can turn around and do what? Do the very same thing that Messiah did. Let's come full circle back up in verse 9, um, verse 8. Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Do you suppose Paul then wants the Gentiles to imitate Messiah, become a servant to the circumcised? Why? To show God's truthfulness. Why? In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy? Do you suppose Paul has that in view? I think so. I think very strongly that Paul has that in view, that he wants these Gentile Christians, and I'm closing with this, to be ever aware of the fact that they are going to be used by God to bring stumbling Israel 
back into the picture as well. And how will they do that? By by ministering to them, by loving them, by evangelizing, not turning them into Christian Gentiles, not stripping them of their Jewishness, not telling them that they need to give up their Torah observance. That doesn't do anything to win uh, religious Jews uh, to Messiah. What it does is it strips them of their um, understanding as a people group. No, I think what Paul wants is that for the two groups to come together and to retain their ethnic distinctions, Jews remain Jews, Gentiles remain Gentiles, we must have the two pairs, we must have the distinctions, or else we lose the force of the Abrahamic uh, promises and what I call Shema theology, right? God is the one God of Jews and Gentiles. That's what I mean by Shema theology. I'm not talking about an ontological discussion about how Jesus can be God. That's not what I mean by Shema theology. I mean the, the idea that Paul recognizes that the one God of Israel is the same God of the Gentiles. That's what I mean by Shema theology. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the God of the Jews, the Lord is one God of the Jews and the Gentiles. That's what I mean by Shema theology. We'll continue to develop this as we go on, so don't get confused if you don't understand right now. But in closing, this is where Paul's going. This is the bookend to the Romans chapter 15. Indeed, it's probably uh, a significant bookend to the end of the uh, 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 letter as a whole, as he started out with explaining to his readership that the, the, uh, the gospel is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul continued to have a Jewish um, perspective when it came to evangelizing those lost peoples. He didn't give up on Israel. God didn't give up on Israel, and Paul certainly didn't want the Gentile Christians to give up on national, unbelieving, stumbling Israel as well. And this really plays into this whole idea of the weak and the strong, especially if the weak are perhaps um, inclusive of unbelieving Jews, those who have not yet made faith, a promise, a profession of faith to Messiah, but yet they're still part of the larger community, the family of God that Paul recognizes still exists, and that the Gentiles need to understand how they fit into this larger family of God. The smaller circle, believers, brothers, Christians, no problem. But the larger circle, Israel, the family of God, Jews and Gentiles being brought together so that eventually the larger, the smaller circle will overtake the larger circle and we'll have one large family of God uh, praising and worshiping God and his Messiah Yeshua one day. Omain, Omain. Let's close uh, down that part of the commentary. And um, next week, uh, I'll, uh, I had a quote here from Tim Haig's uh, commentary, uh, Paul's Epistle to the Romans, uh, that will summarize what we taught, what we learned this week. But I won't do that this week since we're running out of time. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and let's take the next 15 or 20 minutes to work through um, uh, this part of my commentary. Let me jump all the way down to the end of the uh, commentary and pull up the little chart and show you what we're going to be looking at tonight. We've been working our way through this chart from CARM, and um, last week we looked at how based on a certain amount of passages throughout the Bible, particularly in this case all in the uh, New Testament, that we have fellowship with God the Father, we have fellowship with God the Son, and we have fellowship with God the Holy Spirit. And this is the way that we are examining the truths of the Trinity by showing how that um, uh, 
concepts and uh, um, themes and actions that are relevant for one person of the Godhead are relevant for the other persons in different parts of the Bible, leading us to the best practices conclusion that we're dealing with one being known as God who nevertheless uh, exists in a triunity of persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so tonight, we're going to turn to uh, these passages and talk about how that God is eternal. God the Father is eternal in Psalm 90, verse 2. God the Son is eternal in Micah 5, 1 and 2. And God the Holy Spirit is eternal in Romans 8, 11 and Hebrews 9, 14. So let's turn right to it. The first passage is uh, out of the book of Psalm. Let's see, where did I have it here? Psalm 90, verse 2. So let's look at this one first. Um, the psalmist says in verse 2, quote, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In the Hebrew, uh, this phrase, from everlasting to everlasting, ume olam ad olam, ata el. The, the word olam, which we're probably used to hearing, everlasting or forever, which we see right there as well, shows up twice, everlasting, to everlasting. This term is a term that describes, um, it can mean a really long time, right, from the context, or it can mean a time that has that has no specificity, no beginning or no end, or maybe it has a beginning but it has no ending that's been designated. From, from the context of this passage, the psalmist is simply trying to get us to understand that God is described as the being who is from olam to olam, meaning this is describing his beginning and his ending, which have no limits. This is quite easy to understand. We don't even have to jump through different um, versions of this verse to understand what the psalmist is trying to get us to understand. I think it goes without saying that um, uh, Unitarians and uh, Trinitarians both agree that God is from everlasting to everlasting. No disagreement either way there. The next passage, uh, uh, let me take a look at it, is Micah 5 one and two. So let's look at this. In Micah 5, uh, the psalmist, I'm sorry, the, the, the writer is going to describe this one who's prophesied to come to Israel, and this one has origins that are similar to the way God is described. Let's look at it in verse 1. Uh, he says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is These are words that are prophesied to Israel. That's the context. That's why I read verse 1. Look at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, and we know this verse from uh, reading through our, um, uh, uh, this, uh, this shows up, in part of probably the Christmas liturgies and things like that. But you, O Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, right, speaking of this one from Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is a messianic prophecy here. But look at this last clause, this last phrase, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. But if we look at the Hebrew, let me turn to Micah 5.2 in a different version. In fact, just look at look at different um, versions here. Out of the NIV, it says, 
in the last clause, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says, whose origins are in the distant past, who will come for you, come for you on my own. ESV, we already read, whose coming forth is from old. Berean Study Bible, though, look at this. One whose origins are of old from the days of eternity. That's interesting. KJV, whose goings forth have been from old from everlasting. And then New King James, uh, same thing, basic from everlasting. But look at NASB, whose uh, his times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Likewise, NASB 1995, from the days of eternity. And again, uh, NASB 1997, eternity. So if we continue to look down through some of these versions, Holman Christian Bible from eternity, American Standard Bible from everlasting, uh, from eternity, the, the, the Septuagint translation of Renton, um, uh, eternity, Dewey Rames, uh, everlasting, ERV. E- e- uh, you get the point, is that we're, we're beginning to see that uh, uh, Micah is describing this one whose comings are from a long time ago. But what's interesting for our purpose is that if we jump over to, um, sorry, let me jump back there. If we jump over to the Hebrew, remember in the um, Psalm passage, God is described as from everlasting to everlasting. And we said it's Ume olam ad olam, and we're highlighting this phrase olam, which means everlasting or eternity. But if you look at the Micah passage in the Hebrew, right here, mikadem mi yame olam, olam, same word used by Micah to describe this one who's going to come to Israel, same word that we use, that the psalmists are used to describe God, same Hebrew word, olam. Meaning, we're describing a being, a person, whose days are equated with that of God himself from ancient days or from everlasting. The, the ESV says ancient days, but we already showed that other versions show that as from everlasting. So what does this mean? The Messiah is eternal in Micah 5, 1 and 2. And then the last two passages, the first one, Romans 8, 11, I didn't quite, I looked at this one and I didn't quite follow um, uh, what they were trying to, uh, what Karm was trying to bring out. But let me just read it anyway. Romans 8, 11 says, and we've read this before, I, I, I think I know what he's trying to say, but I wasn't quite sure at first. Romans 8, 11 says, this is Paul speaking, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, right? So we're talking about the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we already understand that this is a spirit passage. Uh, the spirit of Jesus who raised, uh, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. In another study, we showed how it's the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus himself raised himself from the dead. So we got a little triadic connection there, um, Trinity connection. But for now, Karma is trying to get us to understand that it's the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and he dwells in you, and he gives life to your mortal bodies and things like that. The second passage that they bring in is Hebrews 9.14, and there... Um, hang, why do I have that? <laughs> Give me a second. Ah, I see what I did. I think I left out. I, I didn't bring in the Hebrews. 
sorry, let's turn to uh, Hebrews. Give me one moment. Um, Hebrews 9, 4, I forgot to, to add it to my little uh, bookmark here when I was preparing for my class. Hebrews 9.14. Sorry about that. Uh, let's go down and read this. Hebrews 9.14 says, um, speaking about the Holy Spirit, the same same Holy Spirit that we just read about in Romans chapter 8, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay, so the connection to um, Romans, I believe, is that, let me see, let me duplicate that real quick so I can have it again. And let's go back to Romans here. Bear with me. I should have had this pulled up. Okay, so I think what Karma's trying to say is, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, in order to raise someone from the dead, you have to have everlasting life yourself. In other words, you could, you have to be among the living. You are, you're not part of the, the dead. Um, I think that's the connection they're trying to say. The Holy Spirit can only raise Jesus from the dead if the Holy Spirit himself was alive. He himself didn't have um, a time where he had to be brought into the picture. Indeed, it's the Spirit of God, which no one's going to argue had a had a beginning. So, Holy Spirit is eternal. That's what we're trying to work from, is the idea that the Holy Spirit is eternal. And I think that's what Karm's trying to get at by bringing in, um, uh, by bringing in, um, where is it? That actually is Romans, even though it says Hebrews up there. This is uh, um, uh, Hebrews, uh, uh, Romans 8, 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, I don't like seeing that there. Let me switch that. There we go. Uh, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, <laughs> my tool is fighting me. There we go. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which spirit? The same spirit who through the eternal spirit offered himself through uh, uh, without blemish to God. The eternal spirit here could go one of two ways. We could see that um, the writer to the book of Hebrews is referring to Yeshua's eternal spirit. The Greek could read that way. In fact, this Greek phrase here, the, um, where is it? Um, here it is. The, uh, the pneumatos ionio, the spirit which is eternal, or the spirit of the ages, the eternal spirit. This phrase, uh, in its exact form, uh, pneumatos ionio, is only found here in the book of Hebrews. It's found nowhere else. This is this exclusive. Um, but the idea that the spirit is eternal is a concept that you can gather by reading through the Tanakh. The spirit of God is God himself, and since God is eternal, then the, the, the spirit himself must be eternal. But we could also attach the clause to um, Yeshua's spirit, the eternal spirit of Messiah. And so uh, based on that note, um, we have uh, a commentary to the book of Hebrews that uh, Tim Hagg brings up. Let me see which uh, part do I want to bring out. Um, do I want to look at this? Give me one moment. It is, let me start at page 43 and bring out something for you. I think this is where I want to go. 
Yeah. Okay. So let me read this, and then we'll we'll uh, draw this part of my study to a close. This is Tim Haig's commentary to the book of uh, Hebrews. He says, speaking uh, speaking on this part of the verse, how much more with the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God. When our author speaks of the blood of Messiah, he is of course referring to His death upon the cross. The constant reference to blood, thus making it clear that Yeshua's death is to be reckoned as a sacrifice, for it is by the shedding of blood that atonement for sins is possible. Reference Leviticus 17:11. Hey, continues. How are we to understand the phrase, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, in quote? Heg says, this is the only time in the Apostolic Scriptures where we find the two-word phrase eternal spirit, just like I mentioned earlier, Benumatas Ioniu. As a result, some suggest that this is speaking of Yeshua's eternal spirit, not the Ruach Kodesh, and therefore would read the uh, would read the word spirit with lowercase s rather than capitalized. So we could attach the phrase to Yeshua's eternal spirit rather than the eternal spirit of the Holy Spirit himself. Heg continues. Obviously, the Greek manuscripts do not use capital letters in this way. So we wouldn't know from the Greek, uh, you know, capital letter, capital S, lowercase s. We don't have it in the Greek. We have to we have to figure from context. Thus, there's nothing in the manuscripts themselves which enable to decide whether the phrase means the Holy Spirit or Yeshua's eternal spirit. Haig conclu- concludes. But while the adjective eternal Ionios is not used elsewhere as a name of the Ruach Kodesh that is to say the Holy Spirit, it seems most likely, Heg says, that our author's use of the phrase is based upon the gospel records in which Yeshua himself gives testimony of the assistance given to him by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And we have a quote from uh, Isaiah, which is quoting, it's actually a quote from Luke, quoting Isaiah, where Yeshua says, quote, and he came to Nazareth, where they'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, these are Yeshua's words, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, this is Luke continuing, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, end quote. So, um, what does Heg have to say about that? We may also note Paul's statement regarding the role of the Spirit in the resurrection of, the Sh- of Yeshua uh, in Romans 8.11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So again, that's where Karm uh, links Romans 8.11 to the Hebrews quote. In conclusion, here's what, uh, let's read uh, uh, um, Heg's closing conclusion here. Sorry about that. Haig says, It is equally possible that the phrase eternal spirit could well refer to Yeshua's immutable life, based on what our author has stated in, in Hebrews 7.16, and if so, this would emphasize his divine nature apart from which he would not have been able to offer himself as an infinite sacrifice and thus would not have been able to obtain eternal redemption. End quote. Yet on the other hand, Heg states, had he not become man, fully human, and thus dependent upon the Ruach for his guidance and strength, he likewise would not have been able to be the sacrifice for sinners. He concludes, given the fact that the Ruach is clearly stated to be the means by which Yeshua was raised from the dead, 
right? Recall Romans 8, 11. And that Yeshua himself took the prophecy of Isaiah as specifically referring to himself, it would seem that understanding eternal spirit, like we have in um, Hebrews, as a reference to the Ruach HaKodesh has the greater weight, meaning eternal spirit is signifying that the Holy Spirit is eternal. And in closing, Heg says, obviously both viewpoints are valid in the sense that Yeshua is God incarnate, Emmanuel, and this dual aspect of his nature is thus necessary for him to offer himself both as an infinite sacrifice, requiring that he be both without beginning or end, as well as a man giving his life for other human beings. End quote. We'll stop there with our uh, uh, quote from Tim Haig, and with that, we'll draw our study uh, to the Shema to a close. Let's turn now to the um, liturgy real quick. I'll just be short and to the point. I'll read um, uh, uh, one verse. Uh, I was going to read two, but I'll just read one, and then tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, next week we'll read uh, uh, two verses, and then the week after that we'll read all four. Isaiah 2, verse 3. Remember la- uh, two weeks ago we read 1 and 2. Uh, so we're reading about this promise that of future Israel that one day uh, leading up to this idea that um, Israel will be brought into prominence once again. God's going to establish his kingdom here on earth in in uh, Jerusalem. And eventually we're going to read how the Torah is going to go forth and minister not just to Israel, but to the surrounding nations. It's that whole eschatological view of Israel that we talked about in Romans study, uh, particularly Romans chapter 15. Go back and listen to the study if you missed it. But Isaiah says uh, in the English, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Who? Many peoples, not just Jews. In the end times, many peoples shall come and say. So this fits right in again with the Amenorite promises, right in again with the Shema theology. God is the one God of Israel and of the many peoples, the nations, the Amim Rabim, we're going to see in the Hebrew. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to where? Let's go to, to Salt Lake City. Let's go to, to, to the Vatican Square. No, no, no. That's not where they're going to go. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the mountain of the Lord. They're going to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because God's concentrated presence is there in the midst of the people of Israel. The people from the nations are going to gather there. Let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Right. Keep in mind that it's the nations being brought into proximity to worship God in the midst of Israel, not separated from Israel. We don't have this this bilateral ecclesiology where we got Jews over on one side and Gentiles over the other side, and they're separated, but they're both worshiping God somehow. No, that's not how Paul sees it. That's not how the prophets see it. Eventually, we become one big family of God. Let's go to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. What ways do you think he's talking about? I think he's talking about the Torah, but we'll have to wait till next week to read it in verse 4. Let that he may teach us his ways, and that may we walk in his paths. Um, no, we're going to read about it now. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So yeah, we're going to read it right now. We don't have to wait till next week to read it. Let's read it right now. So we see that this is a future passage where far from envisioning that the Torah has been done away with by the death of Messiah, um, sounds like the Torah is still relevant to not only to God's people, but to the um, surrounding people groups who are coming into proximity to God and to God's people here in Jerusalem that day. Let's read the Hebrew over on the uh, uh, right side of the page over here. 
And the Hebrew says, "Vahalhu amim rabim." The amim rabim is the many peoples. Vahalhu amim rabim. Vahamru lahu vnaale el har Adonai el Beit Elohei Yaakov. Vyorenu midrachayv vnelcha baor baor Why? Key. Let's walk in this past. Why? Key. Because. Ki mitzion teitzei Torah, the, the 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 Torah shall go forth. U devar and the word Adonai mit Yerushalayim, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This, by the way, is where I get the name of my ministry, the um, teitzei Torah, right here. Teitzei Torah is the name of my ministry, and it's taken directly from this verse out of Isaiah chapter two, verse three. The Torah shall go forth. From Jerusalem, and then we have poetically speaking, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the law shall go forth from Zion. Uh, what's the law? It's the word of the Lord. What's the word of the Lord? It's the law. So the parallelism is the Devar Adonai is the, uh, the, the, the uh, Torah itself. So the same thing. So that'll do it for our liturgy from the um, uh, Hebrew. Uh, let's turn to the Greek. Uh, we've looked at this in the past. We'll keep working down through this. Galatians chapter two, uh, challenging passages for those who for those who think that um, the law has been done away with. How can um, Paul say the law has been done away with? But at the same time, how do we fit in the idea that the law is still relevant when Paul says that it's something that we can't be attain salvation by? Jumping, dropping down to Galatians two, we read uh, verse. Um, I think we read fifteen and sixteen two weeks ago. So let's read, let's read um, uh, two verses tonight, 17 and 18. In English it says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, and is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. In verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul is speaking to largely to Gentiles who were entertaining the idea of joining national Israel at the ethnic level, at the legal Jewish status level, which would clear up any confusion that the Torah is for Jews or for Gentiles. In Paul's day, uh, national Israel believed that the Torah was for Jews only, and therefore if Gentiles wanted to join the people group of God, they had to convert and become Jews, legally speaking. But Paul sees this as a stumbling block to the gospel because it, it forces a Gentile to place his faith in his ethnicity and his legal status and his belonging to a people group rather than placing his faith in Messiah. And so Paul sees this as a, a, a counterfeit gospel. It's works righteousness. It's legalism to place your trust in your ethnicity. He certainly wasn't accusing Israel of placing their trust in their Torah obedience like the church levels that charge against Israel today. What he was um, um, chastising national Israel for was the blindness caused by their ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. He wasn't really chastising them for their um, loyalty to Torah. Just their misguided use of uh, uh, Jewish identity which led to following the Torah. So let's read the Greek over on the uh, right side of the page. Um, the Greek says, A de zetuntes de in Christo uethemen. Kai altoi hamartoloi ara Christos hamartias diakanas me genoita. And verse 18 says, Egar ha katalusa tauta palen oikadamo para batin hiautan sunestano. And that'll be the Greek for tonight. Let's turn real quick to the short little video. We'll watch the video, and then after the video is over, we'll simply close in prayer. Okay? You ready? Here we go. 
Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. In Mark 7, 18 and 19, we don't find Yeshua abrogating the Torah or superseding previously stated commands with his own doctrine. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Wait a minute, isn't Yeshua declaring what we read in Leviticus as null and void? Isn't he saying that all food is clean? Surprisingly, he is saying that all food is clean, something previously established in the Torah. Yet, we commonly make our mistake when we assume that just because all is clean, that all is also food. This would be in direct violation of the text of Leviticus. Yeshua was discrediting the departure of direct biblical injunction in favor of man-made rules. He was not discrediting the Torah itself. On the contrary, in his own words of Matthew 5, 17-20, he did not come to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill it. All is clean, yet all is not food. My cryptic statement above means that all that the Torah defines as food is ritually clean without having to submit one's hands to a man-made ceremonial washing before consuming it. Mark's editorial statement, thus he declared all foods clean, must be understood within the context of Yeshua's immediate didactic teaching as well as within the Torah and the Judaisms of the first century. Neither Yeshua, nor his Talmudim, nor the Pharisees, and certainly the Torah, would ever consider everything that we moderns call food as food. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the study. I thank you for the students. I thank you for the material. I thank you for the opportunity to share my notes with those who are listening, those who are watching, those who are studying the Bible right along with me. Continue to carry us along, Lord, and help us to understand the words so that we can practically apply them to our very lives. Help us to meet, understand and uh, um, be sure to to utilize the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us so that we can put feet to our faith. Indeed, we're not going to walk it out in our own strength and have any sort of uh, efficacious witness to those around us if we're trying to do it uh, of human effort. We rely on your precious spirit to empower us to be lights to those around us. Help us to not fear, but to have holy boldness as we share uh, the good news with those who we encounter. Continue to keep us safe. Uh, continue to keep us um uh, 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 provide for us and keep us in a place where we can um, um, continue to grow and uh, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. 
to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 